What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of No BS Finance. As always, I'm your host, Nick Lightfoot, and today we are going to build a little bit on the last episode and touch on a very specific piece of, I guess, the stock market and the economy, which is the very specific topic of IPOs. Further, at the end of this episode, I'm going to read a real-life scenario and give my two cents on kind of what I would do in that situation and, yeah, just provide some context there. So, as always, this podcast is solely for informational purposes and is not meant as investment advice. My email and my Instagram are in the show notes if you want to ask any questions or if you have any real-life scenarios you want me to cover on the podcast. As always, if you're interested in a one-on-one consult, shoot me an email, shoot me a message on Instagram, more than happy to help out in any way. Other than that, let's kick off this episode on IPOs and a little bit on a real-life scenario. So, as just mentioned, in this podcast, I'm going to get specific about IPOs and then run a real-life scenario with all of you. Specifically, we are going to talk about what an IPO is, um, what the steps are to kind of get one going, why companies would even go public, um, why IPOs are kind of hyped up, and why they matter to you. So starting out, what is an IPO? As mentioned in the previous episode, an IPO stands for Initial Public Offering. A company would undergo an initial public offering when they decide that they want to make their company public, meaning that they would go from being not being listed on a stock exchange to being listed. So the main reason a company goes public is to raise capital. Now you may be thinking, why can't they raise capital as a private company? Like, why wouldn't you go to a PE for or a private equity firm or go to some really rich person that'll invest in you? I mean, they can do that. It has got them this far, obviously, but it can also cost them a large chunk of their stake in their company, and they also won't make nearly as much money. A company that goes public can now have a readily available price on their shares, and they can raise money accordingly. So let's do this as an example. I'm a private company with 10 million shares split between four people and two private equity firms. So 10 million shares, there's four people, and there's two private equity firms. So the four people own a combined 8 million shares equally. So we each own 2 million shares of the company. And the private equity firms each own 1 million shares each. So it makes up the 10 million shares total. So let's say this company decides to go public. And we're going to issue, I don't know, 3 million shares to the public. So after this IPO or after we go public and give out these shares, there's going to be 13 million shares total. So the four people own 2 million each. The private equity firms own 1 million each. So that makes up 10 million, and there's 3 million going to the public. So let's say that we decide, or the company decides on a price of $30 per share. And we'll get more into like how this pricing is kind of determined in a little bit, because that's very important. So say they go public at $30 a share. That's what's decided on. That's a possible capital raise of $90 million. So $30 per share, 3 million shares. And they probably did it without diluting the ownership structure that much. Because if we think about this, there are 13 million shares outstanding, as I said. Four people still own 8 million. The private equity firms still own 2 million. And then 3 million is to the public. So that 3 million isn't getting bought up by one person. Or 
probably isn't. It's being distributed to the entire public. Like anybody can kind of get their hands on this. I could go be like, hey, I want to go buy four shares of this for what's the 30 times 120 bucks. Nice math. Um, but yeah, like it's, it's just spread so broad that these 3 million shares are probably broken up amongst hundreds, if not thousands of people. So the ownership, the, these four people in the private equity firm still own a large ownership of that company. And having a large ownership percentage is important because then you can have a large say in the direction of the business and your vote counts for a lot more because when you have more shares, you have more ownership and therefore your vote on which way the company should go, its strategic direction, um, it matters a lot more. So if we think about someone like Mark Zuckerberg who had, I think, I actually don't know his full ownership percentage of Meta or Facebook, but I know a while back he was very adamant about being over 50% because anything he voted on would have to go through because he had majority vote. So any direction he wanted the company to go, he would have um, he would have kind of the final say, no matter what, no matter how other people voted. So in general, that's why companies will go public. Um, huge capital raise. Like that's pretty much the main reason. And But there are some downsides. Um, there are a lot more reporting standards. Um, you need financial statements. I can't remember if you're required monthly or quarterly, but it's a lot more... Um, often than a non-listed company. And non-listed companies also don't need audited financials. They usually will have them because um, sometimes banks will require them if they're giving out loans and stuff. But um, if you're listed, you are required to have audited financial statements. Um, there's stuff like share disclosures, regular regulatory filings, all this stuff. Um, also, private equity firms usually view... Um, an IPO is a good way to exit their holdings. Like they're private equity firms. They're not public equity firms. So usually there's like a lockdown period after a company goes public. Um, it varies per, um, per company. It can be six months. It can be a year kind of thing. But generally there'll be like this lockdown period and then the company will be like, okay, we're a private equity firm. We got you to public. So now we're going to sell off our shares. Um, and usually they make a killing off these IPOs. And that's kind of that, that's kind of how private equity firms have their cycle. They support these private companies. They go public. They wait for the lockup period, which is like that six, 12 months range where they can't sell their shares. And then they exit and kind of move on from there. So the next thing with IPOs that I kind of want to get into is what are the steps into this IPO? So we're going to talk about how they undergo it and how a price is set because setting the price is probably one of the most important things. Um, because you can't really just say like me as a CEO being like, I'm going to list it at a hundred dollars a share. And that's that. No, that's not how it works. That's not going to fly with really anyone. So the first step is to hire an investment bank. Um, the investment bank will be involved in kind of the underwriting process involving regulatory filings and like due diligence on the company, stuff like that. And the investment bank honestly does a ton to make this IPO happen. Um, I don't really want to get into a lot of details because it doesn't really matter. But one of the most important things is regarding the buying of shares. Because when a company says, like if we use the one from the last example, like we're going to send out 3 million shares, someone's got to buy those shares. Like what if people don't buy them? Um, so, so there's stuff like that that you kind of have to take into account. So with an investment bank, there are several types of agreements that an investment bank and a company can, I guess, agree to when we're talking about share price and how 
much money is going to be raised. So the investment bank and the company can either, they can agree to raise a certain amount of money. So in the last example, I think we were just said it was about $90 million was going to be raised. So we could say like, hey, um, the investment bank and the company agree to raise $80 million. That's what they're going to raise. If they raise more, that's great. If they raise less, then they might cancel the IPO kind of thing. So the investment bank can also just agree to sell the shares. They can be like, okay, you're going to list, I don't know, 3 million shares. We'll agree to sell all those shares. And that's that. We're just going to put them out there. If they don't sell, then we're going to cancel the IPO kind of thing. Or even if they don't sell, they can just leave them out there. And the share price will sometimes plummet just because no one's buying those shares. Um, as I just mentioned, they can agree to sell the shares. If they don't all get sold, then they can cancel the offering. Um, another one that is very, very um, common, I guess, with very large IPOs is um, the investment bank will combine with other banks to kind of de-risk the IPO. So they're not the only ones that have like the liability for selling the shares or buying the shares or doing all that kind of stuff. So they'll get multiple investment banks involved just so they're not the only ones taking on all the risk here. So that was kind of pretty broad, but there are like multiple structures you can get into place, but that gets really into like the legal aspect of it, which I don't want to get into here. So once the agreement is reached with the investment bank um, and approved by the SEC, so the Security Exchange Commission, um, the company and underwriter decide on an offer price. So this is the price the shares will be sold at, and they also agree on the number of shares. This is super important and is usually decided by the company's goal, um, the conditions of the economy and kind of the market and the success of the roadshow. Always love that term. The roadshow is just basically where they promote the IPO. They like go around and um, basically promote it to a bunch of basically the public and different companies. Um, but I just always thought roadshow was a kind of a funny word for it. It sounds very Western and old school. Um, so usually the company will underprice the original shares to make sure that they're all sold. Because if we think back to the agreements, if there's certain agreements where if all the shares aren't sold, they'll cancel the offering. So usually they'll underprice them. So like in the last example, when I was like, oh, like we're going to list at $30, you might list at like 25, you might list at 20 kind of thing. Um, so when they're underpriced, usually they will rise substantially on the first day. And this is called... Um, the pop. So you might hear like, oh, this company went public and it popped. That just means that its share price like shot up really high on that first day. So after that initial pop, the first few days um, to a week, maybe even longer, the stock will kind of stabilize and will settle into a market price. Once stabilized, the company can see how much each share is worth and then technically how much their company is worth to the market. So that's when you kind of get into what is called market capitalization or market cap. So that's just the number of shares that you have outstanding times by the price of the shares. And that's your market cap. That's how much your company is worth. So that's where you kind of get into what I was talking about in the last episode of private companies being hard to price because, um, or being hard to sell and price and stuff like that. Because here we can just go, okay, the number of shares and these are the market value of the shares. Whereas with the private company, we didn't have a market value of the shares just a side tangent there. So next thing is an IPO is really hyped up so much because usually PE firms or private equity firms make a killing. 
um, and people who get in early will make money on the pop. So yeah, I, I think we kind of touched on it in the last section here too, is like PE firms will buy in, they will buy into this uh, private company. They'll usually get in for pretty cheap and then they go public and now their shares are worth a lot more and they usually make a killing. Um, and then also, as I just mentioned on the pop, like someone buys in exactly when those shares get put out to the public, maybe it shoots up 50%, maybe it shoots up hundred percent, maybe it shoots up 20%. You still make good money on it, but it can also be a challenge because you have to be very on top of it and you have to have very good software to kind of get in on those big IPOs like that. Um, so next thing is an IPO matters to you just in case you ever hold private shares and they decide to go public. Like you might, you might have, um, family or friends or something that have private shares and you might be like, holy shit, they just went public and now I'm sitting on a gold mine. I don't know. That's just, it could be really good. Like who knows, but unlikely, but who knows? Um, or in case you've heard of the term, so like getting back to like why an IPO matters in case you've heard of like IPO and just didn't know what it meant or you were curious about what it meant, this is kind of the breakdown. Um, and then the last thing I want to get into is I've kind of got up into it in the last episode, but in case you were just wondering why PE firms always get super hype about a company they shares in and went public and why they're always like super happy. I remember when, um, I remember when I was working before and we had a company, um, that in their portfolio, they had a company that went public and let's just say it was a very good year end party for that firm. Um, because they just made so much money on it. They've been waiting years for this company to go public. So very, very exciting. And that's kind of how, um, how private equity firms do, do really well. And, but once again, sorry, going on tangents on tangents here, but, um, as I mentioned in the last episode, there are downsides, like, like not every, very few companies end up going public. There's a lot of them that end up just either staying private or going bankrupt. So it's very risky. It is very risky to get into that game and you need to have a lot of capital to do it. So that's a bit more of a detailed description of what an IPO is, how it works. We define some terms. Hopefully you guys kind of um, have a good grasp of it now and hopefully you learn something new from this. All right. So the last thing on this podcast that I want to cover is a real life scenario. Um, it's a little bit different than what we've done before, but hopefully you guys find this helpful and maybe you're in a similar situation and this can kind of benefit you on the direction you should take with your finances. So here's the scenario. I'm a 26 year old student. I have one more year left of school. I currently have 8k in savings, $15,000 in student debt and a part-time job that barely covers my rent. I feel like I'm really behind because all my friends are working, buying houses, saving money, and working full-time jobs. So I just want to know what you think I should do. So a little bit to unpack there. Um, I'm going to start by not talking about your finances and kind of dive into the feeling of being behind. I'm going to keep this simple because I'm a pretty blunt person and pretty, (laughs) almost talked myself into that, but I am, I guess, a fairly simple person. You aren't behind. You're still in school. You're working towards a career that hopefully you really want to do. This career is going to be where you make most of your money and you haven't even started it. So you basically have a job that is helping you stay afloat right now, which I would say is not like 
real life. Like I remember when I was in college and I had a job and I was like, I don't know, it all like, obviously it's a real job, but like at the same time, it's not where you're going to be making your money. This is just to cover some of your expenses. It, like as in this example, it's not even covering all of your expenses. And like some people start their careers earlier than other people. Like I remember when I was in college, people were like figuring out their lives. They were making all this money. They were working full time or they had already finished school. And I'm like 25 and I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, dude, some people are just, they just know their path right away. And some people just get on with their careers right away. It just is what it is. It doesn't mean that they are happier or ahead of you. It just means that they were like, hey, like I found this job. I'm going to do it. That's fine. Like that's great. You still have a long time to be making money and your 20s and early 30s are for finding out what you want to do even longer than that. Like if you're job hopping until you're fucking 60, like fuck it, that's what you're doing and that's fine as long as you're happy and you're finding something that like can actually make you some money, then that's what matters. So I just really want to emphasize that anyone in the situation is not behind. Even if you were 31 and you're like, oh fuck, like... I'm on my way to having my dream job, but I'm just not there yet and I'm feeling really behind, that's fine. As long as you're working towards that, that's what matters. So, therefore, no one in this situation should be making rash decisions with their money based on this feeling. It is purely psychological and it's not something we should be feeling and that's kind of society's fault, not your own. So, let's... That's, that's the psychological portion. Let's get into the finance portion. Um, I like to start this out by thinking about levers. So in this case, you can either earn more or spend less if you want to be saving more money. Those are, those are the two levers. You can earn more or spend less. We'll start with earning more. So in this case, you're a student. You're one, we one year away from graduating and you work a part-time job. You're probably super busy. You're probably trying to finish these courses. Maybe you've backloaded it and you have more courses than usual. Or maybe you're on that the same thing that you've always been on and you're just equally as busy as you always are. Um, so you're super busy and I wouldn't want you to sacrifice your grades or graduating and kind of your mental health just to make a few more bucks from another job. Like at the end of the day, you need to keep the end goal in mind. You're, you graduating is the most important thing and the most important thing when it comes to income growth. If you don't graduate, then you're not going to be making the income that you that you thought you would when you graduated school. So that like you need to keep that in mind. Like yes, you could grab another job that makes you a few more dollars, but at the end of the day, graduating is going to make you way more money than this ever would. So with that in mind, I wouldn't go for an increase in income. You're busy, you're doing this stuff, and you have 8K in savings right now, which is pretty good. So the next option is saving more. The next lever is saving more. Now, I'm not sure on this person's spending habits, so maybe you could cut down on expensive things if you're still buying those. But based on this information, um, I'm not gonna speculate or anything like that, you still have $8,000 in savings, and you're almost done school. Now, you might be worried about how you're going to get by on 8k in savings for the next year. Now, if you're like, oh fuck, like I don't think I'm going to make it for the year, like 8k isn't enough for me to kind of live out the year, which is fair. And if that's the case, I would take out more student debt. I would apply for it and I would take out more. Um, now people might be like, oh fuck, like I don't want to take on more debt. There are so many 
terrible forms of debt and student debt is the best debt because you have 0% interest on it. Like they forgive you for late payments. There's 0% interest. Like it is the best form of debt guys. So don't feel bad about taking on a bit more so you can get by and kind of live your life. I wouldn't add on another job uh, and kind of sacrifice your mental health um, instead of taking on more student debt. I'd probably do that instead. So, um, yeah, so I would take on more student debt and not even worry about kind of saving additional money or grabbing another job. Because let's be real, you don't have the income to think about savings or anything right now. You know what I mean? Like you're not, you're barely paying rent with your part-time job. Like you're not really thinking about being like, oh, I'm going to go put an extra 200 bucks a month into my TFSA or my RRSP. Like, no, you're thinking I need that $200 to live my life. So that's fine. And at the end of the day, you need to focus on getting through school. That's the most important thing. Once you're through school, then you can focus on income generation, paying off the student debt, and then saving in your TFSA, RSP, all those accounts that we've talked about. But right now, getting through school and making sure you have that larger income at the end is the most important. So in summary here, don't think you're behind. You're not. And I hate that this is even a thing in society. Next, if you have additional capacity, like maybe you're in three courses, you're just kind of cruising, then yeah, you can get another job if you feel you want to, but I wouldn't make it a priority. Next, if you're buying luxurious or very expensive things that you, that you could live without, I'd probably cut it off for a year. That it, it isn't essential and your life will probably become easier without it. Further, if you're worried about getting through your savings, oh, sorry, if you're worried about your savings getting you through to the next year, I would just take out more student debt if you're not going to take on that extra job. If you aren't worried about it, then don't take it out. Um, once you graduate and have a full-time job, then you can focus on paying off the debt and saving money in a TFSA or RSP, but I wouldn't worry about that right now. So that's my answer, or that's my opinion on this real life scenario. Hopefully that was useful and all of you guys kind of got something out of this experience. So that's going to wrap up today's podcast, guys. Um, I really hope you guys learned something new about IPOs. I hope you guys took something away from the real life scenario that we just ran. Um, and a couple key takeaways just as reminders. So IPOs are used for raising capital. Um, they usually result in private equity holders making a ton of money, but it is a very complicated process. Um, it takes months to get going and kind of finalize and get into that months, if not years. And finally, if you're like the person in the real life scenario, just remember you aren't behind. You really aren't. So I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. Um, I hope you guys learned something new. If you have any questions, shoot me an email, shoot me a message on Instagram. I'm happy to respond. Um, if you want something more personalized, custom suited to you, shoot me an email. We can set something up. Um, if you like the podcast, please like it. Please download it. Um, I didn't even know that you could rate podcasts, but please rate it. That would be awesome too. It shows up to a lot more people. Um, and always share it with your friends and family. Like um, That's kind of how the word gets out and hopefully they get something from it as well. So thanks again, everyone. Um, I hope you have a great day and we will see you next week.